Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone. I am here with Shayan Mortazavi. Shayan is a data science manager at Accenture. And Shayan, I'm excited to welcome you onto the podcast. Oh, wow. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really thrilled to, to talk to you. Looking forward to it. Let, let's do it. So you recently presented at SIGOPS AI and HPC Summit, and we're going to dig into your presentation and some of the work that you're doing there at Accenture. But to get us started, why don't you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in data science? Sure. Well, I'm an engineer by background, and I started as a mechanical engineer in energy domain, building structures and uh, pressurized systems in energy sector, oil and gas industry. And then I moved slightly into simulation of the structures and uh, components that are used mostly in the heavy industry domain. And then I got interested into material science and worked a little bit conjunction between the simulation um, the softwares built for analyzing basically structures in that domain and uh, material in terms of their characteristic properties. And then through that, I had to work a lot with the, with data and doing a lot of tests and these structures and the material properties and making sure that they are fit for their service and good integrity. And so dealing with a lot of data kind of got me to think about, are there other applications for this data that we receive, which in the engineering domain, it's usually uh, people working with these formulas and this scary calculation shit <laughs> and softwares and simulations. So yeah. And then I, I got excited about using data to solve some of the difficult problems existing in engineering domain. Uh, slowly, slowly moved into machine learning and the statistical learning. Nice, nice. Well, tell us a little bit about your group at Accenture and your role there. Sure. When I joined Accenture, I joined a group called Industrial Analytic Group. It is a group which is primarily focusing on application machine learning and statistical inference in the heavy industry and resources, what we call, mm -hmm. kind of covering mining sector, oil and gas, renewables, every sort of uh, manufacturing base that have some assets, heavy, heavy assets. We kind of look into multiple different type of problems from production efficiency, supply chain, predictive maintenance, and optimization of the production plants and these, these sort of things. Got it. And predictive maintenance, which you mentioned, was the topic that you focused on for your talk at the SIGOP Summit. Sure. Can you give us a little background on predictive maintenance and in particular, some of the, the use cases that you've worked on? Oh, yes, certainly. That's an interesting topic because <laughs> <laughs> especially in oil and gas and energy sector, because they are heavily regulated. And there are decades of applying best practices 
into operations and uh, their maintenance systems, it is kind of, there is an inertia and changing or shifting the, to, towards more advanced sort of solutions. So maintenance itself as a problem is trying to maximize or increase the reliability of assets. And this can be cars, could be trucks, could be stationary static sort of equipment, tanks and towers and drums, mm-hmm. could be some rotating machineries. If the objective is to maximize the reliability, increase their availability and efficiency, there has been traditionally a kind of a myriad of strategies that asset operators, depends on complexity of the assets, they have applied. Traditional practices like kind of the fixed base maintenance, where you let the machine run to failure and then you fix when it is broken. So it's very mm-hmm. costly and you don't have any view what is the state of the machine. And then there are some kind of more clever, more systematic sort of approaches in the maintenance that are called time-based maintenance or scheduled maintenance. Mm-hmm where you define a sort of a strategy of how to regularly repair. Kind of getting a sense for the mean time to failure of different components and using that to build up to exactly when the thing might break. And Absolutely. Yeah, these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So in the past, let's say, three, four decades, when IoT and SCADA systems came into heavy industry domain, then a branch of let's say, preventative maintenance emerged called condition-based monitoring, where you the objective is to monitor the health of the equipment at any level using the sensor, sensory data they receive, and then use some early warning sort of functionality on top of that to detect any problems at system level or different hierarchy, and then act on top of that. So preventative maintenance under the condition-based monitoring, these CBMs are kind of resolved a lot of the traditional issues in the in this domain. And predictive maintenance is a child of the CBM systems, like the condition-based monitoring, uh, which simply the objective is can be used a fully data-driven system to predict when assets are going to fail in future. And based on that, optimize their maintenance actions and optimize over their resources and costs. Mm-hmm. And so your presentation, long title, a novel framework for predictive maintenance using deep learning and reliability engineering. So the kind of the broad context or problem that you're working on is predictive maintenance. What was the specific use case that gave rise to some of the work that you talked about? Beautiful, yeah. So in this work, we try to not just fully rely on a data-driven machine learning sort of approach, but see how we can combine and marry the the domain knowledge exists for decades and been built up with the sort of capabilities we get from machine learning to address this very specific problem of can we detect failures, different levels of these machineries in advance and provide some insights that can be meaningfully taken as maintenance actions in order to move away from like 
reactive sort of maintenance or and also to let them to judge whether they can delay the maintenance actions or interventions or shut down of their plants. So this framework was specifically trying to break down the systems, these complex systems, into multiple different levels in terms of the complexity and the functionality in the system, in the entire system, from reliability point of view, and then use machine learning to kind of monitor the performance of these little building blocks. And then by the means of aggregation through the science of uh, reliability engineering, then make sense of what is the global picture. So this framework specifically, yes, was applied into rotating machineries, which we use everywhere in the petrochemical plants and the power plants and refineries, pharmaceutical industry, everywhere. Meaning like generators, centrifuges, all these kinds of things? Pumps? Turbine generators, pumps, compressors, and turbines, these type of things, exactly. Mm -hmm. So these are complex. These machineries are, you can look at them like the turbo generators as jet engines. They, mm. they have a very high RPM rotating parts, uh, like 20,000 to 30,000 sometimes RPM, like exactly like a jet engine. Mm -hmm. Lots of moving parts, high vibration under significant loads, temperature, yeah. pressure, and yeah, heavily sensored. Yeah, I don't remember the specific stat, but you know, a few years ago, when in the early days of IoT, like there was this... Boeing jet engine or GE aircraft engine example that we would throw around all the time and just how many sensors were in this engine. Sure. And it was an astounding number. So this is all time series data that you're collecting? Exactly, yeah. So this is an interesting point because these machines are, let's say in the energy sector, they are heavily sensored mm -hmm. up to... 2,000, 3,000 sometimes, a number of sensors monitoring like pressure, temperature, vibration, flow rate, some process parameters. But the purpose of these sensors are not necessarily to provide maintenance inputs into maintenance engineers. They are there to, for safety purposes or to regulate the process. In order to address a problem of maintenance, we don't necessarily have the adequate type location of the sensors in terms of type of time series that we want or the parameters we want to monitor. And also the redundancy in the type of sensors that we want to have to monitor specific modes of failures, for example. And also there is no scope for retrofitting type of sensors onto these complex machines. We receive a lot of time series data and we have to apply a predictive solution, which is a kind of new generation approach on top of uh, old fashioned censoring sort of practices. And that makes it a little bit interesting. Got it. It's really interesting that you put it like that. The idea that the sensors that are in these machines aren't necessarily there for you to make predictions 
from. It strikes me that that was always left out of this narrative of like IoT and predictive maintenance and digital twins that I've heard over and over and over again. But what you're describing is like you've got all these data points that are being spun out of these machines. You've got a bunch of many, many years of equations to predict the reliability of the machines and when you might need to repair them, the whole field of reliability engineering that's evolved. But there's a gap. It's like the bridge was built from two shores and doesn't meet in the middle. And it sounds like that's what the core of your presentation was. You're using predictive models to map from the data you're collecting off of these sensors to the equations that you would traditionally use. Precisely. That's a very good summary of and of the problem itself. Maybe going forward into future where the operators and the manufacturers of these machineries realize the the necessity of censoring the machines adequately for the specific purpose of predictive maintenance, which I think it's a trend in advanced sort of manufacturing fields mm-hmm. in robotics and the machineries which are employing a lot of robotics in them, there are sensors to monitor the health of the the machines and parts of them. But in this specific case, exactly, to to bridge this gap, we wanted to really connect the knowledge within the failure mechanics with the predictions from machine learning. And what do we mean by the failure mechanics? So there is a type of analysis in the domain of engineering, of machineries, and a structural design, which is called FMEA, failure mode and effect analysis. Okay. So what is that? It is basically a procedure to utilize the research and the standards exist to analyze the modes of failures of the machine, break down the modes of failures and the effect of each failure mode onto this specific type of equipment or component from bottom up, and then identify the indicators that that can kind of provide a bit of symptom of these type of failure modes, and then act on top of that. So this is a very rigid structural engineering practice that is performed in the beginning of the design or operation and then gets updated. We were thinking the kind of the novel novelty of the thinking that maybe we try to deploy was can we use this failure mode and effect analysis and build a sort of matrix that from all sort of information you get at component level, we provide a kind of more insightful picture of what can go wrong these building blocks of the machines. And then Again, by the use of the reliability engineering concepts, how we can combine these information at these building block levels and make sense from maintenance engineering point of view, what is going on at higher hierarchies like assembly levels or at system level. This was perhaps the core novelty of the approach. And so the this matrix that you described, is that part of the traditional way of solving? Like, is that the input to the traditional reliability 
engineering approach or is that artifact of the solution that you've applied using deep learning? Sure. No, this was, let's say, one of the pillars of this approach. This didn't exist. So the FMEA does exist, this failure mode analysis, the kind of cause and effect relationship mapping, which you may in like data science domain use different approaches like Bayesian approaches to map or build the causal mapping of the system. Mm -hmm. But in our case, we adopted the, the cause and effect maps from engineering domain, and we built something called fault matrix. And this fault matrix is a relational matrix, a map between the failure modes and really the sensors. So in this matrix, what you have is a map of what are the importances of each sensor in terms of redundancy and the influence in, in ability to detect some of the failure modes at component level. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is can be very static matrix in terms of the importance relationship between the sensors and failure mode, or it could be a learned uh, matrix, or it could be probabilistic. So each, let's say, importance factor in terms of sensor to failure mode could be kind of in incorporating uncertainty by, through the means of probabilist, probability density function. Got it. Got it. And so going back to the, the long title that I mentioned, where does deep learning come in? Beautiful. One of the first steps of kind of detecting the problem is still an open question for us. How we can detect accurately the problem and then link it to, you know, an understandable mode for engineers. But to detect it, I think Traditionally, at least in the field of condition-based monitoring, people have been applying some fixed thresholds onto sensors. And then by this means of like operating bands, they were able to detect animals' behavior and then based on some rules, act upon those animals' like sequences or so on and so forth. Um, in our case, through some literature review, we wanted to see, can we predict the behavior of these machines in their all possible states? So these machines, as you know, they, they are operated in multiple different modes in terms of operation, depends on how much load they want to apply to the machine. Mm -hmm. And also because they are in operation for 30 years, many several hundred thousands of hours in operation, they see multiple different changes in the state of operation in the entire asset. The, for example, in oil and gas industry, the reservoir pressure and temperature depletes, the, the regime of operation changes. So whatever sensor reading that you receive from these all parts of the machines is subject to shift or drift or change. Yeah. So setting a fixed, let's say, set of thresholds on these first would require continuous maintenance and observation of the false alarms and so on and so forth. And also it may not be fully kind of aware of all possible modes of operation. So we were thinking, we haven't seen everything of these machines operations. 
Should we use machine learning to learn from the past of these machines? Do we know the entire state of the data? The answer was no. We were in the best case, we, we only knew 10, 15 to 20% of the entire operational state of these complex machine sensors. And when you say that, do you mean 10, 15% of the operational state as defined by a specific set of sensors over a lifetime, meaning you have the 10% of the lifetime of the machine or that the sensors themselves only capture some small percent of the operational state of the machine itself? That's a very good question. I think it's exactly the combination of both. Okay. (laughs) If there is a machine which has been just in operation, you can have some prior belief about how the sensor should behave or how we should receive the data. But the rest is mystery. Mm-hmm. And often, two identical machineries have different sensor readings if you start them at the same time, even set, set up on the same plant. Mm-hmm. This is one side of the unknown on uncertainty. And also, a lot of operational modes, as you said, in terms of the state of operation is unknown throughout the life of the lifespan. The more interesting one is the patterns of failures, the trends. In majority of the cases, when you want to cover the entire, let's say 200 or 300 different individual components of these machineries, you haven't seen failures of a lot of these components in their life. So to maximize the coverage and also not make rigid assumptions, you have to move away from traditional supervised learning to detect failures. That doesn't work. Or if it works, it covers maybe 5% of the problem. Mm -hmm. So where did machine learning and deep learning came to help us was we said, let's say, do we know what is, to our best of knowledge, what is the temporal, transient, healthy behavior of these machines and the sensor observations that we get. We said, possibly, yes, we have good knowledge of that to some degree. And then we said, okay, let's build these models, which in this case, we use recurrent neural network, LSTMs at sensor level to monitor and learn the the healthy behavior kind of sequences of these machines. So from what we get in terms of the sensor live stream data, let's say if you build this representative model of the sensor from purely healthy behavior point of view, can we predict a healthy vector into future? And then checking that sort of sequence of time series versus what we actually receive, we were able to predict a, any deviation. So yes, this kind of difference or residual signal for us was the outcome of using machine learning in the case of recurrent neural network LSTMs to detect abnormalities. Got it. Got it. And so to play back at least one part of that, you started talking about the traditional approach and like setting these thresholds like you might see in other places where you you would use anomaly detection. And, you know, one approach might be to like automatically set the threshold, but that's not what you did here. What you did is 
create maybe a lower level or a kind of a, a richer model of the machine itself and didn't use a threshold-based approach. You used this more residual-based approach to determine when an anomaly was happening. Exactly. So basically, this detection of abnormalities was the first sort of step, let's say, in this workflow. Mm -hmm. As soon as you detect some sort of abnormal or outliers within your residual signal, which is the error signal, then what we could do was to use some parametric sort of techniques that you build a distribution of what is your error signal and then set some parameter around the distribution and whatever goes out of the sort of the threshold bands, you detect them as abnormalities. Again, we found we don't know a lot about these signals. This is going to produce a lot of false alarms. What else is out there? We got into this novel approach that scientists uh, in NASA kind of developed and applied to their telemetry data received, uh, space shuttles, which is called non-parametric thresholding. Okay. It is a kind of a dynamic non-parametric thresholding. And what is this? Is basically trying to fit a dynamic sort of bands around your residual error signal. And then these dynamic bands then allow you to detect an, any sort of abnormalities or outlier sequences that sort of is more robust in terms of not reacting to sort of temporal behavior of the of the sensor data that you receive has some cushioning sort of uh, kind of buffer zone to prevent false alarms. And also it is able to, with the help of LSTMs, to capture the multimodal operational phase, like the heterogeneity in the in the data. The technique itself is very simple but kind of beautiful technique. It is at any given time define a wide range of threshold bands and then try to maximize a criteria by analyzing the whole historical distribution of the error. And then that criteria is can we detect any sort of new set of observation that can deviate the properties of the error distribution most at any given time. And that set of band is set as the new threshold dynamically. So once you have this set of thresholds, then you detect the strings that sits outside of the threshold, and then you calculate the score for the sequence. And that score itself is calculated based on the second moment of area of the sequence outside of the threshold band. Got it. So you mentioned in there LSTMs. That's the way that you're modeling the state of the individual components. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So the use of LSTMs was to exactly to what sort of algorithms are out there that can understand the temporality in the signal mm -hmm. and the multiple modes and provide the best representation of these noisy sensor readings. Right. So in our case, it was very important for us to make these predictions in future of the healthy bit pattern by understanding the kind of the 
historical changes in the signal. So long-term, short-term memory type signals allowed us to use the previous states of the, of the system and incorporate that because of the specific architecture of, the, of these algorithms mm-hmm. to provide a correct representation of the signal. And it was very expensive to build LSTMs at sensor level. So we talked about few hundreds and few thousands of sensors per compressor. In our case, we had to monitor about 200 sensors per machine. Mm. So building these number of LSTMs and optimize them based on few years of time series data with high sampling rate was a challenge. Mm-hmm. One question that I have about that is the, you mentioned that you, each of the LSTMs is mapping to a sensor. It's kind of like you have the hierarchy, right? You've got these sensors presumably mapped to components and the components map to whatever the machine is. I guess the reason why you do it at the sensor level is because you really don't know the relationship between the sensors and the components per se. Is that right? Exactly. So a very good point. Because we adapted this reliability-based system, which is aiming to detect the modes of failure that are active at any given time, mm-hmm. we had to go from to a bottom-up approach. Mm-hmm. We had to utilize the entire sensors that are monitoring one component, let's say in a compressor. We have shafts, we have bearings, we have seal systems and impellers of the compressors. So let's say in a bearing case of bearings, you have bearings on either side of the shaft and you have multiple different sensors monitoring behavior of these components. A bunch of temperature sensors, a bunch of flow rate that are injecting lubricants to the component, a lot of vibration type sensors in multiple different directions. So Making sense of these active failure mode at any given time is a complex problem. We had to understand what sort of abnormalities working together would relate to which failure modes. For that, we needed to know abnormalities at bottom layer, at sensor layer. And so you created these kind of models uh, or representations of your sensors. And I'm trying to put the pieces together now. You've got these representations somewhere in the middle. You're trying to get to the fault matrices. or And then you've got on the other side of the fault matrices, your traditional reliability engineering equations. What? How do you get from the LSTM output to the fault matrices? Beautiful. Yes. So I think the, the keys, LSTMs are providing these healthy sequences of uh, healthy behavior mm-hmm. as a kind of mimicking the machine behavior from healthy point of view. Is this where the non-parametric came in? Yes. But creating this residual signal or error signal mm-hmm. and then applying the parametric thresholding or non-parametric thresholding on top of that, from but comparing the healthy from actual, then you calculate a score, what we call anomaly score, let's say, at sensor level. Okay. So at any sequence of time, at any time stamp, let's say, you have an anomaly score at sensor level. 
So feeding an anomaly scores from 10 sensors related to one component into the fault matrix or this cause and effect sort of matrix, then you get a score per component per failure mode at any given time. So this is, let's call it like component defect score or failure score. And then having all of these failure modes lined up and components accordingly, then you can have a representation of a ranking of what are the anomalies at any component level. And then, as you said, by the use of reliability engineering logics, you can aggregate the scores at component level, let's say lots of different bearings and multiple different seal systems together and aggregate their abnormality scores together and then roll it up into the assembly level. Mm -hmm. Then you can aggregate again at assembly level into the system level, which is compressor. You can follow the same and go and cover your entire asset. By entire asset, we're talking about like a gigantic oil rig or something. Exactly. Have you gotten that far? We've gone up to critical pass machineries. Okay. And critical pass machineries means those which are sitting on the critical production line. You've talked a little bit about kind of the challenge of just training all of the LSTMs that are involved in doing the kind of modeling here. Can you elaborate a little bit on what some of the the biggest challenges were? Sure. Well, LSTMs are not easy (laughs) to... (laughs) train and optimize, especially that we are dealing with quite a lot of data. We're talking about one second sampling rate of few years of one sensor. And when we talk about thousands of sensors, it's quite extensive. So LSTMs have multiple different hyperparameters and to get the best results, you have to really invest time to optimize them. The other thing was we are dealing with multiple different type of parameters. We want to build these representations. Vibration type sensors are very different in terms of the noise patterns and temporality and the condition dependencies historically to what has happened in order to build a more accurate representation in the future, as opposed to, for example, temperature type signals, which have a big delay and there is not much temporality in it. The noise characteristic is different. Mm -hmm. So optimizing LSTMs at these sensor levels was a challenge. And for that, we were lucky to collaborate with SIGOPT, which is one of the black box optimization platform and helped us a lot using the Bayesian type optimization to quickly learn the, become the optimization hyperparameter space very quickly and efficiently because there we have the ability to optimize over multiple different objectives. Training time was one of our main objectives as well as reducing the the loss. Got it. When you started talking about optimization, I was going to ask, is that where SIGOPT came into play and how you ended up speaking at their summit? summit yeah. you, you just said something interesting. The way you ultimately frame your optimization problem wasn't solely constrained to system level criteria, but you also had this, was it a train time criteria or a compute? Exactly. Train time? Yeah, exactly. So. I think this is a complex sort of pipeline of connected pieces together. Performance of LSTMs in order to detect healthy 
patterns or sequences and detecting the, the residual or error and feeding that into the um, kind of this cause and effect matrix and calculating the scores and evaluating these is entirely together is one massive optimization loop. Mm. So you can look at the LSTMs itself in optimize the hyperparameters there, but getting the best fit there may not necessarily give you a global optimized path. Mm -hmm. So you may get into a local optimization here. So connecting all of these together, building this gigantic sort of optimization loop with multiple different hyperparameters, which are not necessarily all coming from the LSTM sort of hyperparameters, right. was, was a big challenge. So not just from a single LSTM, you've got parameters from multiple LSTMs, say 50 or 100, plus these kind of broader constraints on your runtime. Was your accuracy represented as a threshold or a constraint, or how did you sure. incorporate that into your optimization? Ultimate kind of objectives were into two different dimensions. We had to have the human in the loop in order to evaluate the entire optimization. Mm -hmm. And that was, what is the intuition and engineering domain knowledge in checking whether an abnormality score at system level or assembly level is really an abnormality based on their experience and their knowledge of mm -hmm. failure mode analysis. So that was our ultimate objective that, uh, let's say, we introduced a bit of supervised sort of training into the loop. Mm -hmm. So we had a bit of labeling going on here in terms of what is this ultimate score at system or assembly or component level. And then we had multiple hyperparameter sets at LSTM stage at the scoring calculation stage and so yes we were ultimately optimizing over the frontier of reducing the false alarms false indications and maximizing the correct detection per failure mode mm -hmm. so that was our frontier got it got it can you elaborate a little bit on the human in the loop aspect of that you know how much labeling had to go into being able to build these models? That's a very good question. <laughs> I think <laughs> we built some blueprints in hours and hours of discussions with lead rotating machineries, those who have spent designing these machines for 20 years, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So we had lots of workshops to go through these patterns, historical patterns of past 10 years or so of the machine operation, and then get all of these experts in agreement of what is their final judgment of which sort of sequences are abnormal sequences, which are kind of noise artifacts, which are sensor drifts and so on and so forth, which of them are combined together are representative of failure mode. So through that process, we labeled several of these examples and then it was a labor intensive process for sure. And to be clear, what you're labeling is a time series data set from of what? 
all of the sensors in a given machine or a particular sensor, or I guess it couldn't, it would have to be system level. It has to be system level, yeah. So we covered 15 or 20 critical components okay. of these, let's say, turbo compressors, which are sitting on the critical path of the machine itself. Got it. Failure of each would result in the failure of the entire machinery downtime. So we identified those and some high critical failure modes that statistically or from reliability point of view resulted in the majority of the failures. And even we focused on that. Got it. Got it. And ultimately what the SIGOPT element of the optimization process was, was kind of narrowing in on the points on the frontier that you had to care about and optimizing across that. So you weren't trying to optimize across the entire state space of hundreds of LSTMs and these constraints and all all that stuff. Is that the general idea? That's very true. Yeah. So hyperparameters that we're talking about are like learning rate and the lookback sequence, which in the case of recurrent neural network is important, also increase the time, training time and regularization parameters and so on and so forth. It was about 12, 15 number of hyperparameters per LSTMs to optimize mm-hmm. and the multi-objective, basically multi-metric optimization. So Using the Bayesian optimization definitely helped a lot to quickly reduce the space of exploration mm-hmm. per LSTM. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And so what's next for this effort? <laughs> it's very exciting, actually. <laughs> what we talked about today so far is primarily focusing on one aspect of, let's say, predictive maintenance domain. There are multiple different things you can do. If the main objective is to make the best maintenance action, this is a very difficult question to answer because detecting problem is one thing, making action and a correct action is a other thing. Mm-hmm. And the action space is influenced by what sort of resources do you have available? Which part of the geography you are operating? Are you in the an island in an offshore 200 kilometers away from everything. So you've got a whole set of supply chain concerns that impact. Supply chain complexity. Yeah. And the complexity of the maintenance team and the maintenance tools that you have to have on board. Lead time of the components that you need to order and being built and tested to come may take 10, 10 months or 12 months to come. So you're saying that you've solved the easy part of the problem so far. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> this is a very complex question to answer. So what other things that can help in terms of prediction side on this first aspect before getting into prescriptive sort of mm-hmm. side of maintenance is how much time do I have to fail till, till ultimate failure? This is a very valuable information. So we talked about, I think, a lot of off-the-shelf tools that you see existing in the, in the market, the GE tools and so many other things, are, are very good in detecting the anomalies. But detecting how much time do I have at component level and failure mode kind of from that point of view is very valuable because it allows them to safely operate their systems without shutdown. Because these machines are not designed to constantly shut them down to repair or do some 
interventions. Predicting time to failure is, and linking that to, to the knowledge of failure mechanics is, uh, is an interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you get to take on the what to do about it. That's very true. Yes. <laughs> and I think there, there have been a lot of efforts in, in research and also beautiful tools exist at the moment, which are trying to optimize the action mm-hmm. over cost, over resource availabilities, and over health. So health sort of, let's say at system level, health plot or health indicator can come from these sort of approaches, anomaly detection, time to failure, aggregation at system level. But understanding the cost, the, this is the whole set of um, new sort of formulation of what is the my cost function from operational plan point of view, the revenue that the, the system is generating, the um, criticality, so on and so forth, uh, to build this cost function. And then resources also. Is it also a, a majority of the cases is human related. We are talking about the materials like the spare parts point of view and also human repair experts who are going to be deployed onshore or on-site or offshore kind of external supply and building the function mathematicizing that is a task mm-hmm. and do you expect to be able to apply similar ideas meaning introduce machine learning or deep learning to complement existing domain knowledge to solve those other problems as well? Definitely, definitely. I think a series of like probabilistic approaches, a Bayesian-based and Bayesian networks, for example, or even a lot of machine learning applications in predicting different aspects of the cost function mm-hmm. in terms of the supply chain, representation of the supply chain yeah. as a kind of a sequential model. And also reinforcement learning can come into effect in building the, the function of your in, and learning your cost function and supply chain. Also, a lot of NLP people are applying in kind of feeding into sort of knowledge graphs. And mm-hmm. by building these knowledge graphs, you can link the entire asset data in terms of the operational plans, what is going on in terms of in a, outputs mm-hmm. and then driving information from these knowledge graphs and feeding that into some sort of analytical layers to predict what is the consequences of actions um, on top of these knowledge graphs is another thing. Got it. Got it. Awesome. Well, Cheyenne, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about your experiences in this area. Very cool stuff. Pleasure. That was a pleasure talking to you. It was good fun. Thank you. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.